0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zataran's, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zataran's.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. As 2018 quickly draws to a close, the Louisiana Eats team decided to pay tribute to some dear friends who we lost this year. 2018 will always be remembered for the untimely death of Anthony Bourdain, We spoke to that renegade bad boy back in 2011 and have reprised that conversation for this week's show with a lot of previously unheard dialogue. 2018 was also the year that we said goodbye to the grande dame of hospitality, Miss Ella Brennan. We'll get a last taste of her greatness and then we'll hear from my dear friend, French chef René Bajou. Renee called New Orleans home for over 20 years and left an indelible mark on the city's food scene. It's time to bid adieu to some culinary luminaries on this week's Louisiana Eats. In 2011, the HBO series Treme was in its second year, bringing the world an authentic spin on post-Katrina New Orleans. That was the year one of my best friends, Lois Eli, got his very first scriptwriting gig on the award-winning series. Much of the show's content centered on New Orleans restaurants and food, with chef Susan Spicer consulting and even playing a cameo herself. I was starstruck when I learned that Anthony Bourdain had also been hired as a scriptwriter that season, and I asked my friend Lois to hook me up. The resulting phone interview was simply delightful. Anthony Bourdain was open, gregarious, and frankly, we really had a fun conversation, much of which, unfortunately, hit the editing room floor. My goodness, at the time, Louisiana Eats was still just a half-hour show. I was absolutely devastated when I heard of Anthony's suicide this summer and remembered that long-ago conversation. Right off the bat, I let him know how much love the city of New Orleans has for him. He explained to me that the feeling was mutual.
1: Honestly, there's, there's, I mean, I'm not pandering here. There's no place like it in the world. There's no place even remotely like it. I mean, it's a deep love affair. It's an unconditional love affair with New Orleans. But, you know, one of the great joys of working on Treme is it's allowed me to come down a couple of times. And, I, and I'd like to point out that the work I'm doing on Treme is not that New Orleans-centric. I do not presume to know the New Orleans restaurant scene or its cuisine enough to be an expert or more knowledgeable than the many chefs who are already there. I think my work on the show, a lot of it takes place out of New Orleans. I'm, I'm, I am I'm, think, you know, if you were to ask me my, my single favorite dish in New Orleans, it would probably be a, a late-night drunk, you know, muffaletta sandwich from, like, you know... A, uh, I don't know. Birdie Mart's still open, but you know that was, you know, that's perfect happiness to me.
2: How did
0: you come to be involved with Tremay in the first place?
1: I got a call out of the blue from uh, David Simon, uh, which pretty much uh, turned my knees immediately to jelly and uh, caused a lot of high-pitched girly noises to uh, come, uh, you know, come out of my head, and uh, I was very, 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 very excited.
0: So about this season,
2: hey,
3: you were in New Orleans, right? New Orleans, yeah. Right, well, you're gonna read this and go bad. This <laughs> guy leveled your town. He's ripping the chefs, the food, everything.
0: Alan Richmond, he wrecked us? Must have been pretty delicious to get a lick in for all of us New Orleanians on Alan Richmond and that article where he questioned the existence of Creoles and called them fairy folk. How great Alan's going to actually play himself on Treme.
1: Honestly, I, I floated the idea because it was such an incendiary article and it came out at such a painful time at an inappropriate time. I just sort of mentioned it off the top of my head during a story meeting and said, listen, I mean, you know, there's personal business between me and this guy. So, uh, you know, <laughs> my, the first rule of writing fiction is you never settle personal business in fiction. But, you know, it's it's worth looking at, you know, an article like that one written by a guy like Richmond, you know, maybe is something you could use. And so originally I'd written some stuff of, you know, of a guy very much like Richmond. And I guess that David and the producers approached Richmond himself. And, I, you know, i got to say, it was pretty cool of him, I mean, uh, to agree to take part and even more so to take part in a project that he knew very well I was involved with. He must have been apprehensive. Excuse
3: me.
0: This is how the Creole fairy folk back home cure their three-day
3: stubble. Sazerac.
1: they got to be kidding. Nobody throws a Sazerac.
0: Is there anybody or anything in the food world that's sacrosanct to you?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, there's people who I, I, I sneer at and make fun of. I mean, I, I guess it's, it makes for more fun press, but a lot of times it's more fun to do, but I... I like to think that I'm at least as passionate of the people who I think are doing great work and deserve to be, you know, or should be recognized more or already have been recognized who I just think are like ultra cool. I mean, you know, I I think Fergus Henderson, uh, Gabrielle Hamilton of Prune in New York, who just wrote the most amazing chef memoir like ever. Uh, Jonathan Gold, the great food writer in Los Angeles. I mean, these are just, you know, right off the top of my head, people who I think are really great for the world and do amazing work, and, and I can't say enough nice things about
0: Okay, I have to ask you about that photo of you in that 2007 coffee table book, My Last Supper. I love having naked Tony on my coffee table. <laughs> so just tell us, how did that come about? And I have a lot of folks who would like to know, what kind of bone was that?
1: I think it was a, <laughs> not a femur, the upper uh, like thigh bone. Uh, it's not a tibia. It's the I don't know the leg from the hip to the to the knee. And, you know, in all modesty, I, I probably could have used a, a smaller bone. Uh, you know, <laughs> and there would have been adequate coverage. The Story behind that is I was like duped, meaning you know very good friends with the author, the the, the photographer, uh, as is my friend Eric, and. Uh, you know, we were all getting together talking about the project before it had even started. And I said something to Eric like, you know, dude, I'll do it naked if you do it naked. And he said, oh, I would do it naked. I, I was do it naked in a tree in Central Park. <laughs> I said, "Oh, okay, I'll, I'll do it you know, naked holding a bone or something like that. So I lived up to my side of the bargain. And then when the book comes out, there's Eric fully dressed, sitting at a table, looking very distinguished, you know, crumbling French bread in front of, in front of himself. So I really got taken.
0: What advice do you have for young cooks who are just getting started?
1: Um, prof- professionals, um, I mean, you know, it's all about before you spend the money on an expensive cooking school, just be sure that it's for you, that it's that this is the life you want. You know, spend some time working in real restaurants before you take out a huge student loan. And then when you get out of school, immediately on getting out of school, travel as widely as you can and work for the best people you can, even if it's for free, because it'll... You'll never be easier in your life to to make that kind of sacrifice to work for free or for cheap in a great restaurant, you know, just for the experience. Uh that's a mistake I made in my career as I didn't do that. I went for the money right away and, and and I paid a I paid a price for it.
0: Do you have any regrets?
2: Um
1: I mean I, you know, sure as much as anyone and maybe even more than a lot of people, but uh with the way I've lived my life and and uh hey, yeah, it's all worked out pretty well.
0: What do you think the biggest misconception about you is?
1: Um, gee, I don't know. Um, that I'm cool <laughs> or in any way hip. I mean, I'm hopelessly not. You know, I'm a I'm a middle aged guy with a four year old daughter, and you know, I spend a lot of my time, uh, you know, watching uh, SpongeBob with my daughter. But <laughs> I'm not traveling around the world, so you know, I I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't I don't go to sleep every night feeling misunderstood, nor do I wake up in the morning and. And feel compelled to, like, uh, you know, put the earring back in and, you know, slide into a leather jacket.
0: That was the late Anthony Bourdain from a 2011 Louisiana Eats interview.
4: Kinsman. I'm the senior food and drinks editor for Extra Crispy. I'm the contributor to Food and Wine magazine. I am the author of High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves, and I am the founder of a website called Chefs with Issues. Now that we've heard from Anthony Bourdain himself,
0: we turn to a conversation I had earlier this year with Anthony's associate and friend, Kat Kinsman. While there are many individuals in the hospitality industry working to destigmatize mental health issues, few have shared as openly and as vulnerably as Kat. In 2014, she wrote a blog for CNN about her own lifelong struggle with anxiety. The reception to the piece was so positive that she eventually expanded the blog into a book called High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves. Since Anthony's suicide in early June of this year, she's been traveling the country, helping the industry build networks of support, in part by creating safe spaces for them to express their troubles. During my conversation with Kat, she emphasized the degree to which social media plays a role in our
4: misconceptions about mental health. I think we're living in a world where people are putting out these avatars of, of success that aren't necessarily true. Yes, you see somebody's life and they're traveling all over the world and they're, you know, in these far flung places. They're eating these fabulous things. They're wearing these fabulous clothes. That isn't necessarily reality. That's what they they want you to see. Um, they could be going back to you know their their bed, their you know their hotel, their wherever it is they happen to be, and feeling super crappy, and maybe putting that picture out with something they needed to do to convince themselves that they were okay. You might be looking around and comparing your life to everybody else's, thinking, "Why are they so happy and I'm not? Why are they this and and I'm not?" You don't know that they are necessarily. Everybody's just trying their best. Everybody has a bad day. Everybody has a bad week. It's a harder struggle for some people um, than others just because of stupid brain chemistry. Um, you know, I'm a pretty public person and, you know, I've been lucky enough to have a, you know, a career I really like and, um, you know, be a p- pretty public person. People wouldn't necessarily guess unless I told them that I can't always leave my house. That is really hard sometimes when I, you know, get down into a pit and I have such a bad panic attack. You know, I'm, I'm trying to put on my makeup and trying to make myself presentable and my hands keep fumbling. I drop things and it's really hard for me to actually like physically Leave my house. You just have to remember that everybody struggles, no matter what they happen to look like and project in in public. Everybody has their moments. It's incredible how prevalent this is in the hospitality industry. It is, and it isn't. Um, I've, what i found, people always ask why why this industry more than others. You know, they say like, "Hey, there are a lot of other high stress uh, professions. There's doctors, lawyers, athletes, all all of these things, and they have you know this huge pressures and all this." They also have money and resources in a way that people who work in restaurants don't necessarily. What they do have is easy access to cheap, quick solutions. Um, there's always something around, and um, there's not a, a taboo around it. Like, of course, you're gonna have, you know, that extra shift drink. Of course, you're gonna go out um, while you're still revved up after work um, because everybody else is doing it as well. Um, you know, it's 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 right there on premises. Um, the other thing is, I always say it's a chicken and egg kind of thing because uh, a lot of people who maybe have these particular issues are drawn to restaurant work um, for some really great reasons. It's where they find the family and community that they don't otherwise have um, because, you know, they don't necessarily fit into a traditional, uh, you know, nine to five job. And they find their people working in restaurants and some of the best people in the world uh, work in restaurants. Um, I've talked to people who have OCD and things like that. And the the order of the kitchen works out really, really well for them. Um, You can go and and, uh, forget yourself in the rhythm of the kitchen sometimes, too, if you were part of this machine that is finely tuned and you're acting as one organism, you can maybe push things out of your head uh, for a little bit and just be part of this amazing brigade that is pushing out this incredible food. It's just a matter of what happens when when that breaks down. And uh, that's where the problems come in. And what happens? What have you seen? I guess the worst thing we see in the industry is suicide. Frankly, I've seen a lot of death. Um, It's uh, seen a lot of death and breakdown, and nobody was talking about it before this. Um, A month after I started Chefs with Issues, which was in January of 2016, um, in February, I heard of three different uh, chef-owner suicides. Um, I started doing the math. That if that is the shortest month of the year, and I knew about three different ones, and that's the tip of the iceberg. How many others were there that we don't hear about? Some A line cook overdosing or somebody um, succumbing to what I call a slow suicide where mm-hmm. they've been using substances for a really long time and eventually – they have a single car accident or their heart gives out or they mouth off at the wrong bar. People were dying all of the time and people, and it just gets swept under the rug, um, for all different kinds of of reasons. Sometimes it might be considering the family insurance taboo. People don't want to necessarily think, Hey, that person parties just like me. And Oh my God, they don't necessarily want to think about it. And, um, Suddenly, we couldn't ignore it anymore. Anthony Bourdain killed himself, and uh, that really sent a wake-up call to the industry in a very big way, because he is the he was the epitome of the line cook made good. In his heart, I truly believe that he he was the person everybody wanted to know or to be. He was grateful for everything that he got he didn't think of himself as above anyone else he uh you know I- He treated people with respect and care. And you could always tell that he felt lucky and grateful to have everything that he did. And he had access and respect and money and opportunity. And it's been so heartbreaking for so many of us and especially so many people who entered the profession because of him, because they think if that's a person who seemingly, you never know, who seemingly had it all. And still wanted to end his life. Then what the hell kind of chance do I have? I, I think that's very
0: surprising to people because you expect somebody down on their luck, someone that life has mistreated it seemingly unfairly. But when somebody's really at the top of their game,
4: suicide isn't an option that you expect. A lot of us have bad brains, and that's I, I say this to so. Many people, because I suffer from this myself, our brains lie to us constantly about our worth. Um, so much of these uh, mental conditions are, are 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 chemical in our brain. It's a lot of you know thought patterns that we have learned throughout our lives. But some of us have brain chemistry that uh, needs to be regulated. However, it you know it happens to be, or we have to figure out some ways to compensate for it. And if you're a person with a wonky brain. Like I am, like I, you know, and I don't presume anybody else's um, situation, but you can have achieved, I was talking about with this with a friend earlier today who was telling me that they were feeling the second that they stopped producing work, even for a minute, that they felt like, ah, what good am I? I know that conversation so well. My brain does that um, where I have this balance sheet and I think, I haven't produced anything today. What good am I? Mm-hmm. But also you don't have to justify your existence. But I think if you're, I mean, again, I can't presume to know but if you're in a position where you have all of these things, the expectations are so incredibly high and you have a lot of people depending on you. And um I think we need to talk about hotel rooms um, because so many of these things happen in hotel rooms while people are on while they're traveling, while they're isolated. It can seem like the most glamorous thing in the world like hey, I'm in a hotel room in, you know, whatever city or country or whatever it is happens to be. Well, if you're there alone, it yeah. can be the loneliest thing in in the world. You know, I've been traveling since Tony's death. I've uh, been traveling a lot around the country, getting together in rooms with uh, people in the hospitality industry, close the door, Tells everybody to put their phones away, um, no press, and we're just going to talk about uh, what is going on. And that is I've seen some incredibly powerful things come out of that. I've seen people feel like they're no longer isolated, that they're like, wait, I thought I was the only one. Um, I've seen movement come out of it. I've seen some really special things happen out of it. But I have that conversation and then I go back to my hotel room by myself and my brain is buzzing and stuff. And it can get kind of scary in your own brain sometimes. You know, I am so extraordinarily lucky that I have a really great support system and therapists and people text away. And I run a Facebook group for chefs um, that I know I could just put out a message there and people would listen. But if you don't necessarily have that, and if you're in a bad state and that little flicker of light doesn't go on, um, you know, a life can be lost.
0: I think that's probably the most important thing everybody needs to know is that None of us are truly alone,
4: and it's an act of generosity to people to you know to let them see you not at your best, because I think there are so many of us. I think a lot of people have this impulse, and especially people in hospitality, that you have to take care of everybody else. Letting somebody else take care of you is the, that gift of vulnerability is actually that's pretty important.
0: Well, you did the most incredibly generous thing by being brave enough to write, hi, anxiety, (laughs) so that you gave us a glimpse of your life and shared your struggles. And thank you for that, because I think it makes it easier for everyone.
4: Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate anyone who wants to read or listen to it. Y'all are seeing my heart there.
0: That was author and mental health activist, Kat Kinsman. There is a 24-hour helpline available if you'd like to talk with someone. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. But sometimes talk isn't possible. So now there's a 24-hour text line to reach out to for help as well. The Crisis Text Line. Simply text pound 741-741 to begin the conversation. You'll find the links on our website at poppytooker.com. When we come back, we'll remember the late French chef René Bajou who shared his culinary heritage and delicious food with New Orleans for more than 20 years. Louisiana Eats returns after a break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from the Napoleon House, located in the historic French Quarter. Dishing up 200 years of history, refreshing Pimm's Cup cocktails and toasty, warm mufaladas. All-day dining and private events at 500 Charter Street. <music> Chef René Bejoux was a giant among men. In both stature and ability, Rene towered over many of New Orleans' chefs. With my great love of French food, Rene had me at first bite. Following his culinary journey, I enjoyed Rene's beautiful food, from Rene Bistro to La Côte Brasserie, and more recently at the Palace Café, where he created and curated the charcuterie program for all of Dickie Brennan's restaurants. But back in 2011, when Bastille Day came around, there was no better way to celebrate that I could think of than to sit down with my French friend, René, for a taste of how he celebrates the day. But first, I wanted to learn how his
3: brilliant career in food had begun. Uh, My career in food. Wow. We don't have two hours, do we? Um, (laughs) I was 13 and a half when I started being an apprentice, Um, classical apprentice in France, close to um, being in jail, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you work uh, 18 hours a day, uh, three years straight, no days off, but you know what? Everything I learned in that period of three years is what I still use every day. And when I was an apprentice, uh, out of a 16 apprentices, I was one of the only one, the only one who finished the three years. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, but I didn't realize anything of that at the time. I was just like, oh. <laughs> uh, so.
0: I understand that you are one of, perhaps, 50 French master chefs in the United States. What does that mean and how do you become one?
3: Basically, the peer system watches what you've done in your career. You don't apply for it, that's the thing. And you don't make competition for it. It's just they analyze your, your career, what you've done. It's more than just doing one show for one day and showing 12 plates. They're watching your career.
0: It's not about taking a test.
3: No, it's not about taking a test. And then uh, the main thing is that that process for me took about four and a half years. I thought I was being judged by the CIA or something. <laughs> uh, they knew more about me than I, I thought. You know, I, I knew about me so.
0: When you think about cooking here in Louisiana, what are some of the specific tastes that you like to draw from from our palate?
3: I think. Contrary to a lot of people think from outside the city, Louisiana occasion and its very few items who are very spicy. I think it's a misconception about the cooking here. Like right? everything is spicy, burning hot. Uh, I just came back from San Antonio, and uh, everything is spicy, hot over there. I cannot eat it, but I like the flavor of Louisiana because it complements everything. And the people who created a cooking here, they were survivors. They pretty much eat whatever was here, so they survive with what was here. A lot of it's still here, and then I always fight people. To, oh, in America we don't have that. Um, in America people eat everything, rabbit and all that. It's all here, it's been eaten by for quite a few hundred years. People say, oh, uh, Americans don't eat sweetbread, don't eat rabbit. Don't eat, I say, oh, not the American I know. Yeah, but They, they eat <laughs> all of that. You know, <laughs> some people say like, uh, oh, Americans don't eat liver. And I say, oh, my body don't eat liver, and he's French. So it doesn't mean all that. But everything is available here and what really is the, the seafood here.
0: And frog's legs. Yeah, and frog's legs. You know, you don't see that much in other parts of the country anymore, but we love our frog's
3: legs. No, no. I like my frog legs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk Bastille Day. As a Frenchman, how do you celebrate Bastille Day?
3: Very happily. And uh, the sense that, uh, hey, it was the head of monarchy and then uh, the, the beginning of freedom. So um, people always ask me, what is the food of 14th of July? It's really not a food event. It's not.
0: So it's summertime food.
3: Yes. A grilled thing. Let's say I'm like, now we have barbecue in France too, but in France, somebody can contradict me about uh, what French people eat on 14th of July. It's nothing. They, they drink a lot. They dance a lot. <laughs> they party a lot and a lot of firework.
0: Do you have any special Bastille Day memories from home?
3: Well, no, but I, had a, I have a great Bastille Day me, uh, memory, and it involved being from here, going back to France, invited by the French president, by, uh, with a friend of mine, uh, Jim Cobb, and uh, Lindy, Lindy Bugs, and got us an invitation at a grandstand in the uh, 14th of July in France, about uh, 100 meters from the French president, and we got invited there. And uh, we had a great time. Um, it's the first time I got to the French Fourteenth uh, of July, it's always I remember when I was a kid on Sunday morning waking up, turning on the TV and watching the, the parade.
0: Ah, so. so you see, being a new it took being a New Orleanian to get that special access in your yes. own home, huh? That,
3: that's it. So sometimes <laughs> it's like that. So don't you think sometimes when you live, let's say, you've been in New York all your life or New Orleans is some stuff you don't do because you think it's kind of a touristy. And then when you leave town for a couple of years or whatever, and you come back, and then you realize, why come I didn't do that before? (laughs) I do touristy stuff all the time in New Orleans. I go to the French Quarter, I take a swamp uh, boat ride. I I do things like that, you need to. I go to Jean Lafitte, they're not really just touristy. I think we need to experience the the regular thing here too.
0: Oh, we're so lucky. I do that all the time, I love it. I
3: love it, it. I'm I'm rediscovering it.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for coming to have this word with us here for Bastille Day on Louisiana Eats.
3: Thank you very much.
0: French chef René Bajou. Au revoir, chef René. cooking school legend Madeline Kamen? Stay tuned and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zataran's. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? Visit poppytooker.com to subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Who was cooking school legend Madeline Kamen? Well, for starters, she was my cooking teacher. Back in the early 80s, I first met the brilliant chef, writer, and teacher when she came to New Orleans for a special series on classical French cuisine at Lee Barnes Cooking School. I was smitten from the start. At that time, I had already moved up from assistant to sometimes cooking teacher at Lee's school and others across the Gulf South. In Madeline's classes, she not only taught the precise methods of the masters, but included all the food science and food history imaginable. I knew that was exactly how I wanted to teach. So I signed up for her intensive professional course, a six-month stint with Madeline and five other students, which upon completion would give me a chef's diploma and a cooking teacher's diploma. Madeline's was the only school offering such an accreditation, so I was willing to spend two years on the waiting list for her classes in Annecy, France. When my number finally came up, Madeline had moved her school to Shakurua, New Hampshire. We all lived in a 200-year-old inn, six students, studying and cooking six days a week for six months, exploring France and the food of Europe through Madeline's eyes. A thoroughly delicious trip indeed. Our textbook was her book, The Making of a Cook, originally published in 1971. It remains my number one go-to tome for recipes, formulas, baking, and roasting times, you name it, it's all in that book. Madeline reprised The Making of a Cook in 1997 when the page count grew from just under 600 pages to well over 1,000. Phew! I still love the original, and bless my French cooking teacher every time I reach for it. Madeline Kamen died at the age of 87 on July 16th of this year in Middlebury, Vermont, but her recipes and tales stay alive in the hands of her students, those who continue to pass on her wisdom and knowledge today. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. On May 31, 2018, one of the 20th century's greatest restaurateurs left the table for the last time. For over seven decades, Ella Brennan's unmistakable touch indelibly influenced and elevated American hospitality. Imagine! Without Miss Ella, there would be no Bananas Foster. In the spring of 2015, Miss Ella welcomed us into her garden district home for a conversation about her remarkable life. She sat elegantly in a comfortable wingback chair. Just like the chair, the entire living room around her spoke volumes about the large, close-knit, multi-generational clan who lived out their colorful lives there. At the tender age of 18, right out of high school, Ella went to work for her eldest brother, Owen, at his first business, the Old Absinthe Bar on Bourbon Street. As a child and into her adult years, wherever Owen was, Ella was never far behind. When she spoke of him, her eyes gleamed as she
2: remembered the brother she clearly adored. He was a great guy. He was just, in my opinion, one of the extraordinary people. I followed him around as a little girl. He was 15 years older than I was. You know, he died in 1955. I was just making 30 when he died. I spent uh, the years from high school through that time working with him because he was always interested in making sure I learned how to do something. He wanted the family to be in a business so we could take care of our mother and father in their late, late, late years. And uh, so he, all of a sudden, one day bought a restaurant.
0: That restaurant Owen bought in 1946 would eventually become known as Brennan's. While the original location was on Bourbon Street, it wasn't long before the Brennan family found another building on Royal Street, which remains home to Brennan's today. Ella recalls the work her family put into that new location before opening in
2: 1956. The day we opened Brennan's on Royal Street, it was a smashing, huge success all over the country. It was extraordinary, it was so good-looking. It was just a natural, I think of my father going down and saying, this building, you don't have to do a lot to this building. Let's clean it up, get the nails out the walls, and let's get down to the basics, what's here? and just let the building speak for itself. Then they could decide what to do. We had this magnificent man, Charlie Gresham, who was a local designer, but had become a member of our family. Mm -hmm. We found him at the bar on Berman Street and he was family ever (laughs) since then. And Charlie understood how to do it. And I think it became naturally great. With
0: encouragement from her brother, Owen, Ella would go on to learn from the restaurant chef, Paul Blanger. Together, they created Brennan's signature dessert, the famous Flaming Bananas Foster.
2: My mother cooked bananas at home. Bananas were a big part of our daily staples in our house. She had many versions, but in particular one I remember is she would just saute the bananas in brown sugar And I could just see us. We were standing in the kitchen in the restaurant. We were not behind the range or anything like that. We were standing right sort of in the middle of the kitchen. And we put this dish together. And they decided to flame it with the, the banana liqueur and rum. And we served it over ice cream. And I remember them taking it to the waiter, taking it to the dining room, and serving it. And my brother Owen said to me later that day, why did you put the ice cream on it? And I said, I say to this day to him, okay, ice cream did pretty good, you know? And uh, so that was just a fun, fun time doing that. It was a typical day. A typical day for Ella included rubbing shoulders with some
0: pretty famous people. For instance, New York Herald Tribune columnist Lucius Beebe was no stranger to Brennan's. Inadvertently, Lucius helped conceive the famous meal, Breakfast
2: at Brennan's. Lucius Beebe was a frequent uh, visitor to New Orleans, and he frequently stayed at the apartment above the Absinthe House. And this is a very elegant, bon vivant-type, smashing guy. And uh, somehow or other, we took to each other. And uh, I was a kid, and he was a much older man, but he couldn't have been nicer to me. Owen had said, we've got to do something to get this restaurant known and people coming here and Mrs. Kies had just written dinner at Antoine's (laughs) and he said what in the hell are we gonna do and so Lucius started talking about while he was getting older and he much preferred having a great meal in the middle of the day rather than late at night and so we got talking about that and talking about that and no one came up with the you know dinner at Antoine's breakfast at Brennan's they said, Ella, do a menu. I spent a tremendous amount of time with Paul Bangeri on Sunday mornings when the restaurant was closed and we would sit down and have these massive cups of coffee. Paul had some of these wonderful two old cookbooks which he eventually gave to me and I had, I kept them close to me because I was using them constantly. So Paul helped me with, he would go make one or two of these various dishes And we'd say, oh, we can't do that, we can't do that, we can't, so we kept evolving what we could do. Ella Brennan's education continued
0: evolving too. Owen sent her across the United States and Europe to learn the restaurant business firsthand from the greats. When Ella moved to Commander's Palace in 1974, she took with her Owen's philosophy about the family business.
2: Well, Owen always said, you want a restaurant that New Orleanians will be proud of. They will want to celebrate there and they want to entertain their guests there, or visitors. You want a restaurant that is more than just the neighborhood restaurant. So when we got the Commander's, we knew what we had to do. We're going to run the best restaurant we know how. And Paul, coming from the Bayou, was doing his version of what they were doing down in the Cajun country. And we started building them together. And I kept saying, Paul, it's got to be a little bit lighter. It's got to be a little bit lighter. It's got to be a little bit lighter. Cajun food's a lot heavier. But basically, he's one of the most natural cooks you'll ever find. It's in him. I talk about magic in their hands. Mm -hmm. They either have it or they don't. And what do I mean by that? It's what they're going to put in. I mean, it's the seasoning, it's the selection of the dish to begin with the raw material, what are they going to serve. And if they have this magic in their hands, they can take this wonderful dish and wow. When Paul
0: Prudhomme left Commander's to open his own restaurant, Ella had to search for a great new talent, and she found it in Emeril Lagasse.
2: I really wanted a chef. I wanted somebody who could take that kitchen and really organize it better, even than Paul could do at that time. Mm -hmm. And so along came uh, this recommendation for Emerald. And uh, I told the man, no, 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 no. He's too young, doesn't have the right experience. And I remember saying to the man, don't bring him down because I'm rejecting him now. He said, bring him down anyway. So he brought him down. And uh, that's how we got.
0: The kitchen at Commander's Palace became a great incubator for budding chefs. That's the place legendary Jamie Shannon honed his chops.
2: Jamie literally grew up in our kitchen. He had gone to the CIA in New York, and he asked the man, Tim Ryan, who's there today, he said to him he wanted to go learn about American cuisine. And Tim said, we'll start in New Orleans. Well, when Jamie got here, he was working in the kitchen. Emil took him on. And when Emeril got ready to leave, I'll never forget, we had four guys we could take as staff. Any one of them could have done the job. Emeril said, that's the one. That's the one. He was a kid, silly kid, you know. He eventually grew up, but it took a long, long time.
0: Tragically, Jamie's time at Commander's came to an end all too soon when
2: cancer claimed his young life. It was just heartbreaking. But he he was just one of the... Tell me about magic in his
0: hands. So how is it that Ella Brennan had such success in finding that magic and creating a culinary legacy? Well,
2: I don't know how you do that. I mean, it just sort of... You, you go with your instincts. I mean, you go with what you feel, this person, how they talk to you about what they're doing, how they... Go fix something, and you see how they how they handle themselves in a the kitchen, and you talk to them about how they how they want to run a kitchen, and you, you you feel you really feel it in your gut, and you say, okay, this one, and uh, I realized what absolutely fantastic mentors I had, absolutely fantastic, the cooks, and then there was. Uh, my older brother and sister, Adelaide and Owen, she mentored him, he mentored me. I mean it was all each teaching each other and I finally began to realize that's what it was all about. So when in addition to running the restaurant, you could build these people and this team. And when they all realized how much they could do together and help each other and Make we, well, we, act, we we have a school. We've been teaching for years now. When they sit down, we tell them where, we ask them where they want to go, and if they sound like they're interested in something and they have some ideas, we try to progress with that.
3: Life is just a bowl of cherries. Don't take it serious. Life's too mysterious.
0: The legendary Ella Brennan of Commander's Palace, who died May 31st, 2018, at the age of 92. Go, go, go.
3: Keep repeating, it's the very The strongest oak must fall. The best things in life to you were just loaned. So, how can you lose? What you never own.
0: We couldn't end this year's tribute show without remembering some sweet, furry guests who made an appearance in our Pet Centric show this past summer. We'd visited the Audubon Zoo to learn more about what the animals there eat and about the zookeepers who tend them. Our last stop that day was with the little alpaca herd. The sweet, docile creatures had just been shorn, and they were sporting some pretty wild hairdos. They ate from our hands and let us pet their soft coats. So no one was more horrified than the Louisiana Eats team when we woke on Saturday morning, July 14th, to learn about the escape of Valerio the Jaguar and the subsequent deaths of those sweet alpacas. Unfortunately, the show was already in the can and uploaded to all of our affiliates, so there was nothing to be done. Apologies to anyone who was distressed by their appearance on the show that day, and our deepest condolences to the entire staff at the zoo. Although there's a new herd of alpacas who arrived at the zoo in November, we at Louisiana Eats we'll all remember the crew who made a guest appearance with us this year. Hey! That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find our full broadcasts, along with our Quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans, and from Don's Seafood where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don's Seafood at one of their six southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport-Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans' French Quarter original theme music composed by David Palmerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eat studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.